Alright, welcome everybody to episode 42 of the Defend Your Ground podcast. Today we are fortunate to have Samo Griffin, our policy director, back again. It's been a while. We've had some... It has been we, a minute. We've done some search and rescue focused podcasts, which was part of a project we've been doing on this podcast. We uh, Last week we interviewed Treasurer Marlo Oaks, Utah State Treasurer, to talk about natural asset companies. And Simone's just been out there doing her thing, working hard, submitting hundreds of comments to the BLM, the Forest Service. She's the one who puts together all the action alerts where we ask you all to go and submit comments along with us. And so it isn't that she hasn't been out there busy fighting for our access and our recreation adventures. She just hasn't been on the podcast for a while. So Simone, it's good to have you back. Uh, we got it's a lot to be talk back. about We get to talk about <laughs> some... Uh, yeah, fun stuff so, with Moab and some fun people. Yeah, so I think that it's been since the Moab, we started challenging this Moab decision in the lawsuits that you and I have talked on this podcast. Yeah. And I've been on a lot of other podcasts after that decision came out. A lot of the off-road podcasts wanted to talk to us. And so we kind of spread the narrative around to as many places as we're willing to talk to us. And we know we've been getting the word out to the off-road community. We've seen a lot of people engaging on our social media accounts and becoming members of BRC. So it's been great to meet all these new followers and supporters and folks who are fired up about keeping these trails open. And yeah, the support but, from Wallop has been awesome. That doesn't mean there hasn't been some opposition as well. Uh, there, We definitely know that the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance and some of these groups that were supportive of the road closures have been out also trying to get the word out. I mean, I know that they've they mostly been having to pay through really expensive ad campaigns to get their message out. All of our stuff's been organic and viral and we've been reaching millions of people and they've been spending tons and tons of their donors' money on ads to try and get their word out. And a lot of those ads had typos in them. It was kind of- Trying to change the narrative of what's actually amusing. happening. <laughs> yeah, so they have their own little narratives that they're putting out there. So we've been keeping an eye on that. and. Today, I mean, there was an article that came out. It's from some blog that we that comes across our feeds from time to time. It's written by some like Jonathan Johnson or Tom John. I, what's his name, Simone? John Doe. John Do Jonathan Tom Johnson. John Thompson. John Jonathan, Jonathan Johnson. Something. And he writes a blog about public lands, and um, he publishes it on Substack, and. So he's, he's just kind of a blogger. I mean, it's just kind of his opinion. You read his stuff. It's it's informed. Like he knows something about how public land and natural resource policy works in the West, but it's but I, it's very biased. He he definitely never departs very far from the most predictable, dogmatic, mostly leftist view of how to look at how public lands get managed and. Uh, so it's like, it's not surprising to go read his blog and see that he doesn't like some of the things we're doing, which is just trying to keep public lands open for outdoor recreation. And, and he, he kind of piled on the bad wagon this last week, criticizing our legal challenge. And I don't normally like to give a lot of attention to people that are out there making bad arguments based on false information, but we don't want these false narratives to get out there and and start getting traction and foothold without challenging them. So we thought today would be a good episode to dive into his article. And he makes several arguments that we see popping up regularly uh, that are just flat out wrong. 
about this decision. And so it would be good to set the record straight and uh, back up our what we're going to say with some of the evidence that we have and why we believe and support the positions that we do. And so his little article, let me get it pulled up here, is called The Arrogance of the Off-Road Vehicle Lobby. And we're so arrogant. <laughs> yeah, we're so arrogant because we want to keep our public roads and trails open. Um, all right, so he starts off. This is in a rather predictable but still maddening move. The off-road vehicle lobby is suing the Bureau of Land Management over the agency's Labyrinth Canyon and Gemini Bridges travel plan for off-highway vehicle use. The Blue Ribbon Coalition, hey, that's us, uh, Colorado off-road trail defenders, Patrick McKay, who I'm very good friends with and is very knowledgeable about this area. And that's why uh, he, we wanted him to be a part of this is because of his personal connection to this area and intimate knowledge of hundreds of miles of these roads and trails. So we're challenging the illegal and arbitrary closure of 317 miles of motorized routes on about 468 square miles, which is 300,000 acres. That's usually the number we see thrown around here, of public land north and west of Moab. So that good, uh, Mr. Uh, Johnson, Tom, Jonathan, he's right, <laughs> right. Up till now, he's like given us yeah. good he gets the fact-based facts information. Right. Um, our off-road coalition was already shot down once by the Interior Board of Land Appeals. And so, sure. Yeah, we did. We've initially filed a, an appeal with the Interior Board of Land Appeals. It's called an so That's the process. That's, that's what you've got to do. You can't go to federal court until you go through that process. And generally the track record in any sort of administrative appeals court is uh, if you're doing an administrative appeal, you lose 95% of the time. SUA loses administrative appeals all the time. Yeah. So it's and, both sides. Everybody loses the appeals. It's just part of the process. Like that's just how this works. It is. And, and occasionally you win them if you catch the agencies have just really egregiously got something wrong. And I think they did in this case. But the problem is, is the, the Interior Board of Land Appeals is really just the Department of Interior asking themselves, hey, did we make the right decision here? And so it's not a it's not an Article Three court. It's not the judicial branch of the government. It's not checks and balances. It's just one branch of the government saying, hey, I think we did the right thing. <laughs> Let's give ourselves a pat on the back. <laughs> and so it's fine. We went through the process. And once we got through that part of the process, we according to Mr. Johnson, Jonathan, we are now taking our gripes to federal court using the same arguments. Which, and so, that's exactly what SUA and the environmental groups, it's... That's what he says next. He, he says, acts hey, we have like, every right to challenge this. Yeah. Uh, but go ahead. Oh, I was just, I mean, he, he does acknowledge that. He says the environmentalists do this all the time. But he says that we're arrogant about it because we're not willing to compromise. But yet, so is he implying that the environmental groups do compromise? The, the, because all the environmental lawsuits are happen. based, they start from some position of compromise. They don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, so, and so we promise to fight for every inch. We do have a project within our organization that we call Fight for Every Inch that's very specific. It's Simone, you've done a lot of our action alerts that we sort of brand and categorize as fight for every inch. And what are we doing with that? I mean, what, I mean, he's obviously misunderstanding this. Maybe that's our fault that he's seeing that slogan and thinking it just applies broadly across the board to everything we're doing. And 
I like the slogan. I agree. I think we are fighting for every inch of our public lands to be managed for multiple use. But what is like when that translates into our actual work, what does that mean? Yeah. So, so much of our public lands, they're already limited and don't allow public or multiple use through, you know, wilderness designations and whatnot. And so a lot of it stems from 30 by 30, which is to lock up 30% of our lands and waters by the year 2030. And so where these environmental groups and the administration, they're coming after even more of what they already have locked up, then we're going to fight for every inch of what they're trying to take even more from now. Um, so that's where the fight for, fight for every inch comes from, is we're seeing these aggressive management and um, project proposals that are going to lock up so much of our land that we're going to fight for every inch of those proposals that are trying to take every mile from us. We're going to fight for each proposal that we see that comes across our computers. I mean, that's where the fight for every inch comes from. Not that every inch of public lands we want to be a road. Um, No, we're just going to fight for what they're trying to take from us. Exactly. And so the way that the environmentalists operate currently is they want everything locked up in some kind of a restrictive designation, a monument, a wilderness, wilderness study area, a national park, um, land with wilderness characteristics, an area of critical environmental concern. They have all these designations. They want as much of the acreage as they could possibly get designated as, as in these restrictive designations. And so when we release an action alert that we've branded as fight for every inch. It's usually that we're opposing a national monument. We are opposing wilderness bills. We are opposing this wholesale effort where they're taking our public land away from us by the millions of acres at a time and saying that's enough. And then they come and tell us we won't compromise because we don't let them take it all. Sorry. Like we are going to fight for it. And, and, and we're not misguided in this. We looked at some of the, if you look at some of the proposals with the Grand Staircase plan, for instance, that we've just closed a comment period on, I mean, they had alternatives in there that really are only leaving a handful of roads open in 2 million acres of land. And so, yeah, we're going to fight for every inch of what's currently available. And so that means when we go into something like a travel plan, And so to read exactly his own words, you say, we promise to fight for every inch of motorized access to public lands, not for any real reason, but as an end in itself and wildlife. And so there is no reason, according to Jonathan, for you to be out participating in your preferred form of outdoor recreation. And if you're not willing to acquiesce and completely forfeit your right to to recreate outside um, your public land, then... You're wrong, according to this guy. And so then he says our kerfuffle over the Labyrinth Room Gemini Bridge plan is a perfect example. And so he says over the last couple of decades, vehicle traffic and the impacts have burgeoned on some 1,100 miles of motorized routes in the management plans area. Okay, so let's stop right there. Let's back up. If you were to go and read our lawsuit, which I assume you have because you claim to believe that our legal arguments are spurious, and I don't know how you would know that without reading the actual legal complaint, Uh, but if you did, you would know that on uh, paragraph 43, we referenced that the 2008 resource management plan, the one of the BLM of the Moab Field Office, closed. 766 miles of motorized routes in the travel management area, leaving only 1,127 available. 
E, that's at the, on page 1 and 11 of the environmental analysis, and resulted in extensive litigation between the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, the Wilderness Society, Blue Ribbon Coalition, Colorado TPA, Right with Respect, all these other groups. And we settled that in 2017, and that's why the BLM agreed to do these travel plans again. And so let's just start there. That's a factual basis that is fact. It's part of the BLM record. We are starting from the position of already having 700 miles closed in this area. It's already so, been taken from us. <laughs> so sure, there are 1,100 miles of motorized routes in that area, but that was already the compromise, sir. We already closed 700 miles in this area as part of a compromise in the 2008 resource management plan that was all determined, all settled through a legal settlement, and now we're here closing. Sorry, closing more. And so that's like factual basis you just totally got wrong number one so to suggest that we have no appetite for compromise but we didn't like the fact that so those 700 miles were closed but they are closed and for you to not concede that that was part of a compromise is terrible terrible reporting and argumentation on your behalf well and not to mention wilderness in this area that's already been designated i mean we have already lost access to so much of this area. I mean, we yeah. were already so forced you... to compromise. So him saying that we're not, we're too arrogant to compromise. I mean, it's just not true. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it, it, for the purpose of his argument, he's kind of restricting his discussion to the Labyrinth Rim, Gemini Bridges area. But if we look more broadly, uh, the, I mean, you have Arches National Park, you have Canyonlands National Park, you have the Bearsers National Monument, and you have multiple wilderness study areas, you have multiple roadless inventory areas in the Forest Service, and you have inventoried roadless areas in the Book Cliffs. And so the, the Grant County Moab area field office, there are millions of acres of restrictively managed landscape in this area. There are a fraction of that, which are open to multiple use recreation and motorized vehicle travel like what you see in the Labyrinth Room, Gemini Bridges area, which is why we care so much about it. It's one of the last few places left we can go do this because everywhere else has been closed through these restrictive designations. But apparently we're the ones who won't compromise and we're just intransigent and we won't just take it that they want to close every square inch of these public lands to motorized outdoor recreation. And so he also says that this... The vehicle traffic has burgeoned on these 1,100 miles of motorized routes in the management plans area. And the type of traffic has changed too, shifting from relatively slow going and quiet Jeeps and SUVs to the dune buggy-esque side-by-sides that have become increasingly popular in recent years. They go faster, are noisier, kick up more dust than other vehicles. They also carry more people into a backcountry than a motorcycle or old school ATV, thus multiplying the adverse effects. See, this okay. part's the funniest to me because he's acting like it's just with side-by-sides. It's because of side-by-sides that we want to close this. They've been trying to close this since well before side-by-sides. But then when he says that it takes more people into the backcountry, an ATV... A Jeep, they take just as many people, and even a motorcycle can take two people in if it needed to, and a side-by-side could take two people in. I mean, it, it just, just makes not, no sense. We, a, a, like, unlike Mr. Thompson here, we like people. 
We think them having access <laughs> to outdoor recreation to is beneficial. There's dignity in that and that people should be able to go out and explore. We don't hate people. That we're okay with people going out and being in the outdoors. And so, but back up. You are right, Simone. This plan, this all was put into motion back in 2008. We just cited the evidence of that, that the resource management plan closed 700 miles of routes in 2008. Side-by-sides were barely coming on the scene in 2008. So to say this is about side-by-sides, well, then why did we close the 700 miles back in See, 2008? See, and this happened even, be, I mean, even before. My grandpa, who was a county commissioner in this area in the 80s with his Jeep, you know, was experiencing environmental groups wanting to close roads and access back in the eighties. Like this isn't a new thing just because of the side-by-sides. I think this guy is seeing that side-by-sides can be a scapegoat and he's trying to make it seem like impact has just increased so much in the last few years because of side-by-sides, which that's just not true. And he has no data to back this up. We know this because the BLM would have included it if they had it. They don't have it. They don't have vehicle use type data at that level to know who's actually using this landscape. And I've spent weeks and weeks out in this area, inventorying routes, doing research for this plan so we can understand on the ground what's happening there. And if you truly believe that these 1,100 miles of routes have burgeoning traffic of side-by-sides on them, you are lying. You haven't been there. You have (laughs) not been in this area. That is not where the side-by-side traffic is concentrating. It's not to say that the side-by-side users aren't growing in Moab. They definitely are. They they definitely are around the trails like Hell's Revenge, those rock climbing trails closer to town is where you probably see big groups of them. And I think people look at that and project and say, this must be happening everywhere. But if you get out into the backcountry of Labyrinth Rims and Gemini Bridges, you do not see the side-by-sides. And then if you look at the routes they closed and say, which user group would be the preferred user group for this route? Who would enjoy this route the most? Well, they closed the routes that I think mostly would be enjoyed by the quiet Jeeps, the SUVs and the overlanders. And they closed the Dead Cow Loop, one of the most popular world-class dirt biking routes in the state of Utah, if not the country. And so instead of closing routes that would limit use of side-by-sides in the area, they close the routes that limit all these user groups that he claims aren't the problem. And the reason, but they, there aren't routes there that are, that have concentrated use of side-by-sides. They're just, they're not. Because if you've been in this area and you spend a day there or a week or whatever, and you just start counting who's out there, you will find there's just not that many side-by-side users. No, you're going to see more overlanders than anybody. Overlanders, vehicle-based camping, people that are there. And so, but, well, actually, Simone, we have hard data of who are the people that are visiting this area. And this is another thing that uh, Jonathan doesn't (laughs) mention in here. And when he says that the traffic has burgeoned on these 1,100 miles of routes, well, unfortunately for him, the BLM actually analyzed visitor data to this area as part of the environmental analysis. And so if you go to page, let me get it pulled up. It's page 127. 
of the environmental analysis for the Labyrinth Rim Travel Gemini Bridges Travel Management Plan, the BLM had to analyze an economic impact to this area. If they closed all these roads, what would the economic impact be? They're legally required to analyze that. And so they did. It's on page 127 of the environmental analysis. And so here's what the BLM says. This is the BLM's data, Jonathan, not not the intransigent, arrogant off-road groups. This is your good friends at the BLM telling you this. This appendix presents a scenario of the estimated impact of route closures, which may result from the adoption of the Labyrinth Rim Bridges, Gemini Bridges TMP. This scenario relies on conservative assumptions and represents what might be labeled a worst case scenario from the point of view of motorized users visiting Grand County. So what they're trying to do is allay our concerns that they're anticipating that we're going to come and say, hey, if you close all these roads, that's going to cause an insi- a pretty significant economic impact to the county. So the BLM's trying to prove like, no, 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 no. These closures aren't going to cause an it's economic impact. It's not a big deal. Impact. We can do it. And so so here are the assumptions close. for their analysis. OHV enthusiasts are primarily interested in recreation opportunities afforded by minimally maintained routes, many of which are classified by Grant County and the state of Utah's Class D routes. The BLM adopts the most restrictive alternative, Alternative B, in the TMA, resulting in the closure of 32.3% of minimally, minimally maintained routes, which is essentially what they closed, was about 30%. They didn't quite close everything in Alternative B, but they got pretty darn close to it. Overall, visitation to the affected area continues at 2019 level. So they're looking at 2019 level visitation data for dispersed recreation. And so this excludes visitation to the four BLM campgrounds and developed sites such as the Bar M mountain bike area and several dinosaur related sites. In fiscal year 2019, dispersed recreation to the TMA totaled 379,171 visitor days. So that's how many people they estimate are using this area, not there for other reasons. And I'll talk about some of those other reasons are people coming to this area. So that's the 379,000 visitor days. That's about a thousand people a day. If you're spreading that out over the year. So a thousand people a day spread out over 300,000 acres. So that's, to start, so so that's not a lot of people. If this data is correct, um, if you it sounds like a lot when you say three hundred seventy nine thousand, but when you spread that out over time and over space, that's not a lot of people. And let's keep, but let's keep going with the BLM, and then I'm going to pick apart their data, and we'll <laughs> see what conclusions we can draw from it. So, if the Class D routes identified in Alternative B were closed, users of those routes would not substitute other routes, and instead would choose not to visit Moab BLM. This economic impact would be permanent and would not be replaced by spending from other visitors. As described in the EA, the BLM does not believe that this would occur. This assumption is included only to provide the worst case scenario that there actually might be some OHV users that would not choose to recreate a Moab anymore if we close these routes. The percentage of visitors using primitive roads in the Labyrinth Rim Gemini TMA have OHV activity as their primary activity in the same proportion as all their visitors to locations throughout the Moab BLM. And the spending profiles for OHV visitors are similar to overall spending profiles that the Moab BLM has developed for all recreation visitation in Moab BLM. Okay, so these are their assumptions. We can debate about them. That's the problem when you do these like model statistics assumptions analysis. It's not really based on like the truth. It's just based on some assumptions, but at least it gives them something they can put in their plan and check off the box with. 
And so then they say, based on these very conservative assumptions, which means that, that these assumptions will result in economic impact, the BLM estimates that only 7,348 visitor days would be lost to the overall Moab area economy if alternative B, the most restrictive alternative, is selected. This represents 0.39%, so not even a single percent, or the 1,894,393 visitor days recreating on Moab BLM lands in fiscal year 20. And so they're saying that 7,000, a reduction of 7,000 visitor days would be lost out of 1.89 million. And so that is not evidence to me of an area burgeoning with traffic. If they, and if it is, if, if, if they, if you think that the 300,000 people doing the dispersed recreation in this area, and let's talk about who these people are, because it's not just the, the evil side-by-side people. This is dispersed camping people. This is all the traffic going down Mineral Bottom Road to go and recreate on the river, which in my experience, if you're in the south part of this area, is some of the most extensive traffic in the area. And so a lot of it's just the people going to the river. A lot of it's people traversing through the area to get to the White Canyon Rim Trail on that Mineral Bottom Road. So you're so some of the Canyonlands visitation data statistics is included in this. Um, I It's hard. They don't say whether they're counting this. But the main road that goes to Dead Horse Point goes right through this area. And Dead Horse Point gets, I have the visitation data on that. Uh, so Dead Horse Point got 1 million visitors between July of 2022 and June 2023. So it's not quite the 2019 data. But almost half of the people coming through this area are just going to the state park, to Dead Horse Point. And I will, I will, I will, I will pay for Jonathan Thompson to go out into this area with me. We will get some cameras out and we will just document our whole day with the video and let's actually document how See much how is really going on out there. Because I've been out there. I know I I know my point will be proven. I don't and that's why I believe he won't agree to ever do that with me. And so anyway, the economic data the BLM wanted desperately to show that this would not cause an economic impact. So they built their whole economic assumption and analysis around uh, what they call the worst case scenario. And then even then, in the worst case scenario, they admit that if they pick alternative D and close these routes, they're still only going to eliminate the access to 7,000 visitor days, spread out over 365 days of the year, spread out over what is now 800 miles. And so then you get on to, so then we go back to the argument of that we are going to, we are stubborn and unwilling to compromise yeah, and that we don't give a damn us. about the environment or the public or the wildlife. There is no environmental benefit to the wildlife or to the environment if all this plan did was reduce access to 7,000 visitor days. And that's the BLM summer. You can't have it both ways. It can't just say, oh, we eliminated 7,000 visitor days out of 0.39%. Not even 1% of the visitation level will be impacted by this. And we've somehow magically got all these environmental gains out of that 
small of an impact. So that would be a great article for the land desk to write an article about. What is the BLM lying about? Are they lying about their economic analysis or they are lying about the environmental benefits of this plan? Because they can't have both. If they're getting environmental benefits, then that means a lot more visitation is being restricted into this area than what their economic analysis accounts for. Uh, yeah, so he says that we're ideologically opposed here at the Blue Ribbon Coalition to decommissioning even the most insignificant road spur. Who is and, he to say what is insignificant, which road is insignificant to him, I mean? Yeah, so first of all, this plan didn't just close the lightly traveled spurs. They closed Dead Cow Loop. I, the, the tubes. Let, let's talk about the economic. Like, How many people do you think really go visit the tubes in Dead Cow Loop, Simone? Do you think it's only 7,000 visitor days a year? Um... There's only 7,000. I don't know, because when I've been there, I mean, anytime I've been there, it, it is a popular area. I mean, people are coming from all over to visit that. So I do think that specific area has more of an economic impact than what the BLM is accounting for. Yeah, and that's the thing. That's like I think generally, like most of these routes, I could see like, yeah, 7,000 visitor use days if you're spreading this out. But then you throw in like Pajo Canyon, Dead Cow Loop, 10 Mile Loop. The like there are 30 named trails that are really highly popular trails, things that are on the Jeep Safari route to say that that those are only like resulting in a reduction of a few thousand visitor days. Um, yeah, that I, I that's like 20 visitors a day across the yeah. whole area. Like, do you think that the tubes gets 20 visitors a day? More <laughs> Then the BLM's wrong. Their their economic yeah. analysis is total garbage. But it's and, because, I mean, how many of the BLM employees are out on a motorcycle riding these routes? I mean, I don't think they actually know. I Yeah, I don't know. And so, but even then, like 20 a day when you're there, do you feel like it's just burgeoning with traffic and it's a big traffic jam or is it? No, and I've been there on very popular weekends when, I mean, there's a lot of people there, but do I ever see trash even on these like most popular areas? Never. Never do I see just trash out. I mean, they're wrong. And so it's like, I have a lot of questions about the economic data. I mean, like part of me feels like some of these routes probably only get a few dozen visitors a year, but, but who's, who's Jonathan Thompson to say which road spurs insignificant. I've been out to the, on a lot of these road spurs myself. They are spectacular. They are great routes. They lead to awesome camp spots. They lead to great experiences. I've, there's not a single one I've I've explored that I came across saying, ah, that was a waste of my time. I, I've, I'm disappointed I did that. And so who's he to become the god of whose recreation experiences are valuable or not? And so, yeah, we are going to oppose decommissioning the routes we've personally gone on. And seeing huge value, we put, I mean, they're so valuable. We put them in guidebooks and people go out there and tell us all the time how much they enjoy going out to these routes and that they go explore these new areas. And that's one of the fun things about an area that had prior to this plan, this much route density is you could go out and find endless new experiences and it spread people out across the landscape. And so even though there are 
a, a, a thousand people a day, give or take in this 300,000 acres. That's a lot of landscape. And then this landscape, the top, the topography is so dynamic and there's so many little canyons and formations and geological, like you just get lost in it. And you, you could be out there with a thousand other people and just feel like you have the whole place to yourself, especially since a big chunk of those thousands of other people are going to the state park and to the river rafting ramps. And it's, it just is, he's just flat out wrong in claiming that this area is just exploding with traffic from OHVs. It's not, it was well-managed. Let's be clear. Some of this spur routes that he calls insignificant were so insignificant that the BLM went and put carcinite signs at the end of them to designate where the campsite should be and marked the routes on the sandstone with white paint so you know where to go and built barriers alongside that. Like they invested time and effort and money and volunteer hours over decades to build recreation infrastructure so people could come and responsibly recreate in this area, which is what they were doing. And those are all of a sudden these are just insignificant, according to to Mr. Johnson here. And so anyway, so that's that. That's the economic impact. That's the visitation level. There's hard data there. Perhaps you should actually dive into that instead of just cut, like share us your opinion. And then you're like, whatever, freedom of speech. It's your blog. You can share your opinion, whatever you want. But you're wrong. <laughs> anyway, uh, they he says... That we, that we don't like the, the decommissioning of insignificant spurs. Our reasoning, because OHV recreation is, in the words of the lawsuit, a way of life in the American West. And he puts that in quotes. And then, really? I mean, it's the same trope rolled out whenever someone tries to get a coal plant to stop belching pollution all over folks or mine to stop defiling the streams. In those instances, it may have some validity. So what gives it the validity in those instances, sir? Just because the, that way, that there is a way of life there, there's an economic underpinning to all of that, and the move could affect the miners or the coal plant workers' livelihoods, and therefore their care. way of life. <laughs> so are you saying outdoor recreation isn't providing a way of life for Western communities and towns? You're like, isn't especially a, one like hundreds Moab? Of billions dollars. Have you been to Moab, here. sir? Have you ever been there? And so, like, what's the number one economy in Moab? What is the what is the economy of Moab? Is it coal? Belching coal mines? <laughs> no, it is recreation and tourism. So it is the way of life. And sure, there's other recreation users. A lot of those are also members of Blue Ribbon Coalition. That's how we know about all of them. But to assume that like the off-road recreation users doesn't count as a way of life, but everyone else's does. It's why? hundreds of billions why? of dollars a year. Like, why does the... <laughs> trillion dollar outdoor recreation economy and the biggest component of that go here's some more data for you to look at go look at the bureau of economic analysis uh, analysis on outdoor recreation they do it every year this year it finally surpassed a trillion dollars and go look at what the five biggest industries are in the outdoor recreation economy jonathan they would be number one is motorboats and fishing number two is rvs number three is hunting which includes a huge motorized component to it because most hunters I know all have a side-by-side -side or some sort of truck or off-road vehicle to get to where they go hunting and usually are buying camper. Like There's a lot of overlap between these. Number four is ATVs and motorcycles and dirt bikes. And number five is snow sports, which includes snowmobiling. So the top five all are either predominantly or exclusively motorized recreation or a huge component of them is. But yet that's not a and, way of life in the American and West. And so this isn't a way of life in the American <laughs> West, quote-unquote. 
The only people that are quote unquote legitimate citizens of the American West are people with blogs, with their little <laughs> blogs, writing about these things and thinking about them. And the government workers at the BLM are part of the way of life of the American West, and they're hey, and they're and they're the friends and allies rafters. in the environmental movement. And like, come on! But man. let's not forget that even the river rafters use motorized vehicles to. Yeah, I didn't once see a river raptor paddling their boats across the (laughs) desert. They all took a truck to get down to the ramp. (laughs) Yeah. And so who are you to come and like say what what qualifies as a legitimate way of life in the American West? It it actually absolutely is a way of life in the American West for people to participate in outdoor recreation and especially motorized recreation because 99% of any recreation user still gets to the trailhead in some motorized vehicle. And so, anyway, thanks for letting us know what whose way of life matters. It, well, and then he's when he says, "Believe me, nothing about this plan will affect their way of life." Tell that to all the people who no longer can go ride the. I mean, cause that's what my family does is like a family vacation. We go to this area and so that we can ride Dead Cow Loop in the single track routes here that. We can't do that anymore. I mean, don't don't tell me that doesn't affect our way of life. Yeah, believe me. I go and talk to everybody in this area when I'm out there and say, hey, do you know their BLM is when planning to close this campsite you're camping at? Nobody can even believe it. And they're saying, they oh, say, we Why? come here every Why? single we year come, for years. I've been years. coming here for years. Why would they do this? Believe me, Jonathan, I've actually talked to them. You can come out there with me. Let's go out. I'll pay for you to come. We can go meet with the people and you can tell them that their campsite got closed. See the look on their face. And then you can tell them, well, this won't affect your way of life. You can tell them right to their face that it won't. I would love that. He highly on, doubts Jonathan, we're going to prevail. We highly doubt the motorized coalition will prevail. Even the most conservative judges are light, or will fall for our faulty legal reasoning. So the plan likely will remain in place as it should. It's a compromise. Uh-huh. Yeah, we like because the first time, we, like apparently the RMP wasn't a compromise yet. It's not a compromise. It, so okay, so this is a compromise, and we have um, we have Laura Peterson. The she's the attorney for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. She's gone on record when the Salt Lake Tribune reported on this story. Laura Peterson gets on there, and she has like a quote. I don't like. It makes me wonder if she's even like a real person or if she's just like a chat bot or something because it's always the same two lines that she says when she's asked for a quote about anything affecting uh, like the motorized recreation into these desert areas in Utah. And basically she says something like, this is predictable, but unfortunate. Uh, Unfortunately, there are some who will never be happy unless every square inch of public land is blanketed in motorized routes. And okay. So we have never asked for that. We have asked to keep the routes that are there already open. The existing routes, we want to keep those open and have people recreate on existing designated routes. That and those routes are such a small percentage position. That, um, SUA's own calculations. If you go read the administrative appeal for SUA's appeal of the, the San Rafael Desert Plan, which chose alternative D and didn't quite close enough. And so SUA was unwilling to compromise. So they went and sued over that plan because those intransigent, arrogant environmentalists would not compromise. And so they sued over that plan. And in that challenge, in their legal complaint, they 
provide the formula they use to determine how much of a landscape a road impacts. And so they look at the disturbance corridor of the road. They look at a, a buffer zone that extends out a certain length on each side of the road. And that kind of varies based on each travel management area. In that case, I think it was like 30 feet from the center line or something like that. And then they calculate out the area of that shape, which is this big, long, rectangular line. And they calculated in that area that it would impact 8,000 acres out of 300,000. And Labyrinth Rims is probably comparable. And they say this ends up disturbing 1% or less of the landscape. And for them, that's too much. So the people who are scolding us for not compromising enough are the ones telling us that leaving, allowing a less than 1% disturbance of the landscape is not is too much. We feel like leaving 99% of it untouched is a pretty good compromise because we actually like going out there to enjoy the environment too. We actually, and to be fair, historically, you could open country travel across almost all BLM land until about the 1980s. And so to Restrict that open country access down to designated routes, again, was a historical, massive compromise by the OHV community. Does that get recognized? Well, not by Jonathan. If we, if we can't agree that these 300 miles of closure are some of our most favorite preferred routes in this area, we can't agree to close those. We're unwilling to compromise. There's been a lot of compromise. And we do not... We've never once argued that we want every square inch of land open to be turned into a motorized route. And so for the SUA attorney to keep saying that, you just sound stupid, Laura. No one's saying that. We, we uh, put it in our comment. We advocated Simone in this plan for Alternative D, a modified version of Alternative D. We'd identified some routes that Alternative D still closed that we were upset about, but we recognized that Alternative D would have been a pretty decent compromise. And so to come out and say we were unwilling to compromise is nonsensical. And um, anyway, so we still think we have a shot. I mean, if you look through the plan, you can everyone can go read these legal arguments. They're on our website, sharetrails.org. We'd love for people to go read the legal brief. It's their legal arguments. Uh, John has his own opinion about them, but we want to see what the judge says. And there's still a lot more to come. I mean, you still have discovery. You still have a whole process of, of going through a lawsuit. And what you'll find when you start digging into what we've seen already with just the basic documentation they made available, they were supposed to get us the administrative record a month ago. We're still waiting for it from the BLM. So we, we still don't have clear visibility to everything, all the information they use to make their decisions. But what we do have is I, I used to teach technical writing at the university level and if one of my students turned in the environmental analysis the BLM included in their record of decision where they chart out all the routes and explain which routes were open and which were closed, and all, there were so it was riddled with inconsistencies, factual errors, all of the things that generally tank a plan under the Administrative Procedures Act. They did terrible work. I probably would have given it a D plus. Even that, huh? <laughs> I mean, they they did the work. I mean, they, they actually like filled the pages. They hit the page count. I was going to say, I don't know if they did the work on having actual analysis, I mean, when you're but talking college he filled students, it I out. Mean, if they go and out. hit the page count, they actually like wrote something, <laughs> but there, there are a lot of factual and referential inconsistencies. 
And that's what happens when you slapdash copy and paste crap together instead of do an actual thorough analysis. And so, but, but I guess if you're the BLM, you can get away with D plus work and you've got a whole army of minions like Jonathan and Laura at Sua who will go out and cover your butt. Uh, but we're going to make sure a court takes a hard look at it because we think they screwed up on this one. And, and if they actually took a hard look at these things like they're supposed to do, that there's a legitimate basis for overturning this plan. So we are going to argue for that. That's what we're arguing in our case. And, uh, and so I, did we miss anything? I mean, I kind of scanned, I didn't read everything this guy wrote, but. I mean, we could talk about things he wrote for a long time, but I feel like we covered the big things that he mentioned. Yeah. So I, I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll see more. Like one of the things when this plan came out, I knew there was going to be just a barrage of misinformation and they're claiming we're sharing misinformation. It's like, okay. I read straight from the BLM plan from the EA. I like I'm citing my sources. I'm talking through my reasoning. I, is can it be challenged? Can, can it be debated? Sure. But where we're coming from isn't just some point of like baseless arrogance. We have legitimate serious concerns and questions with this. And we actually do believe that our way of life is worth fighting for and defending. That's why we've had a lot of support for this action, a lot of support for this action. And so if you want to learn more about it, you can go to sharetrails.org. We'll, as more information comes out, we'll probably do a few more podcasts about this in the future. Uh, We'd love for everybody to become members of Blue Ribbon Coalition. We fight for all recreation users. I know, I know Jonathan here gets really worked up about motorized recreation access, but I mean, Simone, we were talking today. They closed in the same area. They closed all their rope activity access and aerial activities and drones. I, they're restricting everything. And so camping, like, well, let's back up. I mean, they say that the side-by-sides are the bad guys here. The but people who got hurt, everyone. The people who got hurt the most in this plan, like number one is probably the dispersed camping users. Like there were some awesome dispersed campsites that got closed by this. And so if you're into overlanding or dispersed camping, you are the group that got screwed the most by this. You probably don't know it yet. You'll find out, but you got hurt the most. Like you, you were the target here. Wasn't the side by sides though. Everyone's saying it's the side by sides, but you were 100% the target. You got screwed. If you care about vehicle based dispersed camping in one of the best places on the planet to do that activity. Number two is probably the dirt bikes. Uh, just because the quality of the routes they lost were so off the charts high. This would be like, closing down a whole ski lift in Snowbird or something and saying, oh, why don't you just compromise? We need to save the Boreal Toad. And so we don't need the tram at Snowbird anymore. I mean, that's what Dead Cow Loop is to dirt bikers in Utah. And you're cutting off some of the most epic, iconic terrain and adventure experiences for that activity in the entire state. And it'd be, it'd be like closing the the uh, slick rock trails for mountain biking and saying, why won't you compromise and close those trails? Like we need to, why don't you care about the environment? Because we closed one of these most iconic trails that exists. And so the dirt bikers, I think are the number two that got screwed. Number three is probably the state of Utah, which he dismisses um, the state and local leaders who are going to squander millions of taxpayer dollars fighting this stupid decision. And well, they closed, the state's roads. They closed RS-2477 routes. 
They closed routes that go to Sitla. If you, I mean, Mr. Johnson here is like such an expert in the law. He should go read the Cotter decision and see what kind of legal precedents exist for maintaining access to Sitla parcels because they closed access to the state institutional trust lands. And so there are big legal questions about this decision. And so the state of Utah, I think, is probably number three. Number four is probably just like your Jeepers, the people who are going on these Jeep Safari routes like Cajo Canyon and some of these other iconic trails that are now closed. I think maybe you get to like number five or six, you start to get into like, there are some side-by-side -side users who would probably like to go explore around this area. But again, I mean, I've been out there with people that have never been in this area before and I'm like constantly pointing out to them the absence of the side-by-sides. Like, do you hear any side-by-sides? Like, no. Where are there? Are they here? Or as like, Jonathan what? says, the incessant whir of... The incessant whir. Like, it, <laughs> uh, again, Jonathan, come to the area with me and it's we'll bring incessant. sound recording equipment and we'll record a whole day of noise. And let's see how much a percentage of that day with high-end recording equipment is contaminated with the incessant whir of vehicles. It, it'll be mostly just the sound. It'll be a nature scape. Sounds good. Like it, it would not, you get out there and as soon as you turn off your own vehicle, because most people get out there in a vehicle, there is no noise. Like it's, there just isn't that much traffic out there. And that's true because according to BLM's data, if it's only like a thousand people a day spread out over 300,000 miles or 300,000 acres over, uh, it just, that's not that many people in that much of a space. And so these arguments about the environmental impacts, like that's, they exaggerate this so egregiously. And so we're calling you out. Um, I'm willing to go ground truth anything I've said. And uh, if you're listening to this, help share it. We need to make sure that good, accurate information is getting out there and that guys like Jonathan here aren't like running the narrative on this because their information is just terrible. So anyway, so that's episode 42, the Defend Your Ground podcast. I don't know if you have anything else you want to add, Simone. I guess we could have people, if you have, like Simone, why don't you tell them about the Historic Roadways Protection Act and then let's wrap up. Yeah. So if you are listening to this, we need people to contact their members of Congress, especially the Utah delegation. So even if you're not in Utah, um, we need you to contact the Utah delegation plus your own members of Congress to have people support the Historic Roadways Protection Act. So this bill, this legislation, what it will do is it will prevent the BLM from using any funding to implement this plan. Um, and so it could be a huge win for us. We need to get more support in Congress for this legislation. Uh, we do have an action alert. We make it easy for uh, you to contact your members of Congress, um, you can send a letter to them through our action alert and tell them to support it. Um, and then also the Utah delegation, their phone numbers are listed on our website, sharedtrails.org. Um, give them a call and tell them you want to see them signing on to this bill to support it. And in the spirit of compromise, because Jonathan Johnson or Thompson, whatever his name is, values compromise so much and Laura Peterson has said somewhat like that, that we at the Blue Ribbon Coalition will never be happy until every square inch of land is 
is blanketed in routes or something. And so they're defending this plan, so they're obviously happy with it. They say it was a fair compromise and that it was good. And so this area, the Labyrinth Rims, the Gemini Bridges area, is included in the Red Rock Wilderness Protection Act, which is the wilderness bill that the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance has introduced. Uh, their sponsor for it is Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois. And they've included this area in that bill so that it can be designated wilderness. But that would create even more restrictions and more road closures in this area if that were to happen. And so because this group, Laura Peterson and Jonathan Thompson, are so they're such big fans of compromise, we challenged them to remove the Labyrinth Rim Gemini Bridges area from the Red Rock Wilderness Protection Act because they say this is ballots that this completes the protections in this area. So using their own language, then this area should no longer qualify to be included in their wilderness proposal. And so we would invite everybody protection. to call Senator Dick Durbin's office, ask for his natural resource specialist, and, and politely request that because SUA and everybody agrees that this plan was such a great compromise, that the Labyrinth Rims Gemini Bridges area could should and could now be removed from the Red Rock Wilderness Protection Act. That would be a sign of great faith on behalf of SUA to show us that they that this is enough for them and that they're not willing to fight for every inch. I bet they won't do it. But I think we should still ask. I mean, it's their own words. They're the ones saying that this is a great plan and a balance and and they struck the right chord with this. So if that's all true, then this should be removed from the wilderness proposal. And so I've, at the very least, SUA should go on record and let us know if they agree that this area should be removed from their wilderness proposal. Go ask them. Go ask them on their social media pages. It'd be, we, it, this is an important thing for everybody to know. How, to what level do they actually value compromise themselves? Or is this just like a fake trope? that they're using to try to make us look bad. So, so the ball's in your court. Well, let's see if you guys will remove this from your wilderness proposal and, and show us what real compromise looks like. And so with that, uh, we hope you subscribe to our podcast. We'll be back with more information. we got a lot of other things cooking. Uh, we need to give you guys an update on what's going on with these natural asset companies. We've got some other big plans in the works if you go to ShareTrails org and look at our current updates and actions you'll see there's quite a few places you could go share comments right now and so go ahead and do that and we'll catch you next week